Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. What is up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is actually psyched. We have a new co-conspirator on the show today. For the first time ever, Michael Borky is making his guest appearance. It is uh, Mailbag Friday, which is the people's holiday. Um, got a lot of stuff to get to on today's show. Probably talk some old Miss football scheduling, um, some fall camp notes, but more importantly, probably get into your questions What's up, man? You're following probably the most famous guest that's ever been on this show. So uh, how are you going to do that? <laughs> I'm just really excited that, that you and Colin have built up a good following and a, a good podcast. And in one episode, I'm going to tear it all down. Exactly. Just the thousands that listen to the show and millions is just this is going to descend into total anarchy. <laughs> Sorry Very about that. Quickly. We got tons of questions, though. It was a lot better performance than I thought. It was way better than last week. So we well, have it's because uh, I retweeted it. Let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. A way bigger clout guy. <laughs> <laughs> Something uh, like that. So we, I am at the beach. I am at a uh, buddy's bachelor party, which uh, feels weird because it's the middle of fall camp. It's like the season got going again, and then I like dipped out for a couple of days, which I don't necessarily pr- prefer, but at the same time, uh, I guess that we're missing one availability. They will be at uh, they have practice. Well, we're recording this around nine. They have a practice about ten forty-five. Um, no, Rich Rodriguez is Wednesday, so it'll be Mike McIntyre meeting with the media and probably a couple of defensive players. Um, I have audio coming from that, so we'll have some stuff up on Super Talk Mississippi. I will. Um, I was actually kind of interested in that in the sense is we haven't really heard a whole lot from in camp really from anyone on the defensive side of the football. We haven't seen really any team defensive stuff other than like you can kind of see for a couple of seconds when they do, they do this pursuit drill at the beginning of practice where they run out three different defensive teams that at least generally looks like what they're going to run out. But we haven't seen a whole lot as far as the defensive depth chart. So I'll be kind of interested to see what is said there and what is going on. But really, there's not a whole lot of like I can't really think of any really position battles going on on the defensive side of the ball. I think for the most part, unless some guys up front on the line are trying to win some position battles, there's not a whole lot of like intrigue on the defensive side, which is weird to say as bad as they've sucked the last couple of years. Yeah, and even with the new system, I guess the only position battle would be at safety, right? At free safety because um, you know they lost one to the NFL who actually retired before camp even began. But still, they, uh, that's the only one where they don't return a starter immediately in a spot. Yeah, and then they've got, like, they're trying to figure out the free safety thing. They've got Montreal Custis, who has not really recovered from his ACL. Oh, I don't want to say not really recovered. He definitely hasn't fully recovered from his ACL injury. He's been in a non-contact jersey all of fall camp. Um, he, We talked to him, I guess, that was on, it would have been, I guess, either in the last week or beginning of this week. I guess it was on Monday. Um, and he was talking about how he's still kind of just hesitant to really cut on it. Um and really kind of plant or really do anything, I guess, as far as like a full contact football thing, which you don't really hear guys admit a lot, whether that's even the case or not, which is interesting to me because Jalen Jones went down with the same injury 
two weeks before Custis and has made a full recovery, but Custis seems to at least a little be lagging behind a little bit. He's listed as second, I believe, on the depth chart, or maybe he's like he's second, but I'm pretty sure three guys are listed like with him as far as um, free safety spot. But that was a guy that was playing pretty good football before he got injured last year. Yeah, and you know this, so I'm really just speaking to the listener. Depth charts right now are just so fluid that, I mean, looking at them or even putting one out there based on what you see at practice is just such a – maybe it's not a bad idea because people will click on it and people like it and stuff like that, but you have no real idea what they're going to roll out there, especially with the new system and how the amount of multiple looks that you can get with a 3-4 just – outright saying this guy's going to start at this position is just not how it works. It's such a flexible defense that, I mean, even it'll change from game to game based on what look they're going to get from their opponent. I I hate depth charts. And I know especially guys that cover the team have to do it because that's what the people that are reading want you to do. I just can't stand them because it's so fluid. You you can't really get a good grasp of who's – Especially watching 15 minutes of practice. Yeah, for, particularly. Really, this the only thing that's really mattered in this camp from a depth charts perspective is really trying to see who's running with the first and second team offensive line. And even that, I'm not really sure you're going to get a good gauge on because as we discussed the other day, I think on the radio show, is they did the uh, offensive line, some team offense stuff the other day, and the entire offensive line at one point, second team offensive line, was true freshman. And that's probably not going to end up being the case because they have Jalen Cunningham and some other guys. So to your point, there's not really a whole lot you can do with a depth chart this early in camp, but like you said, it's kind of what people want to hear. It's really one of the main things, really one of the only things you can take away from kind of going to the practice viewing because it's not like you're seeing like scheme or any of that. I think I mean, Rich Rodriguez was kind of being a smart ass the other day when we were talking to him after practice, and he was, he was asked about like the offense and the different stuff they were doing, and he was like, yeah, I know Memphis is listening to this, so please tell them we have as much multiple personnel as possible and we'll run everything equally. So <laughs> he, uh, it's, uh, it's not something you can gauge a whole lot from. But to your point, free safety is probably really the only question mark. They have Jalen Julius listed as the starter there right now. And you've got Armani Linton, Cam White, and Montreal Custis all listed as guys that are um, probably going to be, or at least are competing to back him up. But to your point, they're going to need a bunch of those guys to play. Like they're going to need probably Armani Linton and Montreal Custis to play pretty significant snaps for him. Whatever they have in Cam White, I don't really know. He didn't play a lot last year. Um, I guess played enough not to redshirt because he is a sophomore. But at the same time, they're just going to need a bunch of guys. Like, they have John Haynes at strong safety right now behind Vernon Dasher and C.J. Miller. But they're going to need Vernon Dasher and C.J. Miller to play very play a lot of snaps, even if they're not starting. Because the one thing this defense struggles with is depth. They don't have a whole lot of it. Really, other than up front on the defensive line, there's not a whole lot of depth there. So as many guys as they feel comfortable playing is a win for Mike McIntyre. And I was just going to ask you, I, am I crazy in thinking that at least the starting rotation, who knows about backups? There's a lot of names that most people won't recognize. But – the front seven actually might be okay. Yeah, no, I actually think the whole defense on the very like front end of things is actually okay. Like the secondary is a little bit unproven, but they're at least going to be like there's at least there's there's guys that have played a lot of football. Um, and for better or for worse, sometimes it was really just out of necessity. But even in the in the in the secondary, you have Jalen Julius, which you kind of know what you have at that point as a senior. You have Miles Hartsfield, who's a senior. You have Jalen Jones, and you have what who's at the uh, I guess Hartsfield's at the other corner um 
I guess John Haynes is a new guy, but Vernon Dasher played a lot of snaps there last year. Like they at the top of the depth chart, they're actually okay, really across the board. It's really what you get into when you get behind that. And really, as we've talked, I've talked about this a bunch on this podcast is the probably the most interesting part of this defense is going to be that edge position, how those guys that were former defensive ends, most of them, some of them are linebackers, but most of them former defensive ends kind of translate there and how much depth they can accumulate there. Because I think Kadir Shepard is probably a pretty good fit there in terms of the skill set and kind of what they want to do. Um, I think Sam Williams is an even better fit on that other side, even though he's kind of more built like a defensive end. But what they're able to do there and who's pretty good behind them, like if they run out a good defensive line or they run out a good front seven, it's probably because Brendan Williams and Chuck Wiley, who were behind Shepard and Sam Williams, are you know, I guess if there's not if if there's not a lot of drop off there, they will uh, they will be a much better team for it. Yeah, and. I mean, especially in the recruiting cycle, there, there was all this talk about how they need Lakia Henry to come in and be an instant impact linebacker. I mean, I'm not at practice. I don't get to see it, but it doesn't feel like that that's actually true. They're pretty good at linebacker, not great, uh, and probably not even in the upper half of the SEC as a unit, but uh, with Sunogo and uh, Jock Jones, who showed some flashes last year, and uh, I mean, Hibbler is kind of limited, but he's an experienced guy, and suddenly they don't need this Juco guy to come in and just be an instant impact guy like it was sold during recruiting. Yeah, and you got Dante Evans behind Sonogo, too, and that's a guy in 2017 that had to start a couple games because, again, probably mostly because they were so bad back there. But to your point, it's even behind them is a bunch of dudes that's at least played snaps and are not foreign um, I guess to game action. So I think they're yeah, I mean, I think they're they're okay there. I'm not sure how good or athletic they're gonna be. I think the Lakia Henry hype really just came because he's a guy that comes in and you expect those kind of guys to come in and contribute immediately. But to your point, I'm not sure they necessarily needed it, but certainly help with depth. I believe from the very brief amount of we've seen in practice, he has been running with the third team. I don't really know how much or if any stock he put it all into that but at least appears on the very surface level and the tiny bit of shit we get to see is he has, uh, he has some work to do to crack the rotation. But again, as we're talking about depth, you know, the more the better for Mike McIntyre. So if he's able to play him, it's comfortable playing him, they're better than if not. Yeah, and there's so much talk, and I'm sure you, you guys have covered this on the podcast a lot about last year's defense versus this year's defense and scheme and stuff like that. I talked to somebody who's in coaching but it doesn't uh, coach for Ole Miss. And they the way they described how out of position constantly Ole Miss was, and the term he used to me was they looked like they didn't know what position they were supposed to be in. As if it's it, – I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a coaching element. As if that's something element. hard to grasp. <laughs> yeah, it, it is hard to grasp, but – the way he described it to me, and he coaches FCS, but he, he wants to coach in the SEC, so he, he looks at a lot of SEC teams. And the way he described it to me was, they're not as bad as they look because they were constantly out of position. And he said if they get coached like they're supposed to be, then they should be better. He said that's not the worst defense in college football talent-wise, so don't believe that. He said just I, he watched two games of Ole Miss last year, and he said both times they were just so embarrassingly out of position, even from the start. They would line up uh, with a numbers disadvantage, and there, there was nobody on that defense, whether or not it was uh, something that uh, they were told not to do or they didn't have anybody that was capable of doing it. They wouldn't make adjustments pre-snap. So if they had an alignment issue, if there was an off-balance alignment where Alabama did this a lot, where if they had one extra man on one side of the ball, Ole Miss never adjusted to balance out the numbers. 
And so Alabama or, or anybody that they played would do a quick audible and attack their numbers advantage and almost never even adjusted pre-snap to that. So they would line up at a disadvantage and then have a bunch of dudes that would be out of position. I mean, it was a complete nightmare. But uh, this guy coaches for the Citadel, for whatever it's worth, told me that they are not that bad. They're just constantly out of position. So if they can get coached into position, you'd be surprised that they're not completely void of talent for whatever that may be worth to you. And everything you just outlined is 100% true, and that's why there was a change in defensive coordinator, right? That's really why you knew at mid-October, at the end of October, barring something completely jarring, there was going to be a change made on that side of the football. Because, yeah, they lack talent because Hugh Freeze really missed on a lot of guys, particularly up front for the last you know, three to four years, and there was a talent gap. But they played in a manner where it was literally just impossible to blame it on talent alone. And you just kind of outlined why is because of all the schematic issues they had. Wesley McGriff really helped nothing at all. So if your defense, you don't have a ton of talent. And to the to your guy's point, talking about the guy that coaches at the Citadel, like, are they the worst? Like, are they a bottom four defense in college football in terms of talent? I mean, no, they're probably bottom half, right? They should probably yeah. be in the 80 to 90 range, but they shouldn't be in the hundreds. But, you know, they were 122nd you know, ranked defense or whatever the hell they were. It was some awful number because they all not only had a talent gap, but they were poorly coached. And like, I don't, I mean, hot take here. That's a pretty bad combo. <laughs> You're not going to win a whole lot of games uh, with that combination, but it's uh, all a long winded way to say, uh, basically they've got some guys that can play on that side of the ball. We're not going to, I mean, nobody's saying that they'll have a top 50 defense this year or anything like that, but they have the bodies that can look competent. And really, that's all they need to meet their goals, which is really just find a way to get back to the Liberty Bowl or something. Just win six games any way you can. Yeah, and exactly the way you just said that in terms of talking about just getting to the six wins and getting to a bowl game. I think if they're a defense that comes in at 100 or under in terms of total defense at the end of the year, that's probably good enough to get them to a bowl game. I mean, if they're, if they're, between, if they're in the 85 to 100 range and no worse than that in terms of total defense and FBS, that's probably good enough to get them to six wins, right? Because it's been so bad before. I mean, that's a drastic enough improvement that that'll at least give them a chance. Right, and I mean, they're difficult games. Like Memphis, for example, I I just do not envision if Ole Miss is healthy and Matt Corral is competent that they lose that game. That was not a great Memphis team a year ago. They won eight games, I understand that, and Norvell's had – a really good program there since he's been there. But they lost their two best running backs. They lost their defensive coordinator, and that defense was horrendous last year anyway. They lost a bunch of bodies, and they beat nobody with the pulse. Their best win was Houston, and that was after they knew they were firing their coach. Everybody else they beat were, were bad football teams. Like, they beat uh, East Carolina last year. Really bad football team. But they went to Tulane and got smoked. If you look at Memphis's schedule, they won eight games, but those are not eight good wins and they lost their two best players on offense. So if they can get by Memphis, uh, you're beating Southeast Louisiana just by default. You're beating New Mexico by default. If you are just competent defensively, Cal can't score. They're replacing five of their top six wide receivers, a quarterback that's not very good, and they're replacing the running back as well, I think. But definitely five of their six best wide receivers. That team will not be able to score, and you get them at home. And suddenly now, if you're just serviceable, there's a path with two walkthrough games with a Memphis team that you should be better than. You have Vanderbilt at home, who, even though they've got three really good players on offense, that team should take a 
pretty big step back from a year ago. At least most people expect they would. And now you're drawing a path to six wins. Yeah, and at the very same time, you lose that game, and you're and thinking then the next week is pretty tough. I mean, they could lose to Memphis and beat Arkansas. That's still very possible because Arkansas is not very good. But it just feels like it's going to snowball. Like, I guess you really – like, we talk about them having to go through that stretch at 3-1 and one or – no worse than three and one or whatever the case may be, you really just can't start zero and two. I guess right, like you got to win one of those first two games. But it just feels like if you're losing to Memphis at the beginning of the season on August thirty first or whatever, you're really turning around six days later and beating an Arkansas team that is yeah not very good. But I just feel like if they lose to that Memphis team up there, it was a fairly lethargic performance, and I'm probably not putting my money on them to win the next week. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, probably not. In Arkansas, if Ole Miss loses that game, Arkansas will bring 30,000 people to Oxford, so it won't even really be a home game anymore. That'll be a pretty big springboard for uh, Chad Morris, too, if they come in here and win that game. Um, that's going to be an interesting game if they're both 1-0, which I, uh, just for intrigue's sake, like part of me kind of hopes is the case, because if both those teams come, I don't even know who Arkansas plays week one. But like if Ole Miss comes It's a walkthrough. They'll, they'll, they like will a- have one win going into Oxford. So if Ole Miss is 0-1 going into that game, though, and you know the crowd's half full or whatever at 6 o'clock at night, it's really just going to feel like a repeat of 2017 or 2018. It's like, okay, like, here we go again. Just really for intrigue's sake, it'd be a hell of a lot more interesting if Ole Miss beat Memphis. Yeah, and I, I hope they do just for that sake, but um, certainly possible. And I heard an interview recently, and they were talking about Ole Miss, and the guy said, well, you know, I only see four wins because they're not beating LSU. And, I mean, they've got to play Alabama and they've got to play Auburn. It's like, at what point does getting to a bowl game require you to beat Alabama and LSU and Auburn? Yeah, I mean, you're assuming those are losses pretty much every time you chalk it up on the schedule, right? Which, honestly, this has nothing to do with anything. But side note, just makes that 2015 year all the more ridiculous where they beat Alabama, Auburn, and LSU, and Mississippi State and lost the West. I'm not really sure how you do that. That that was the Hugh Freeze. That's a microcosm of the Hugh Freeze era. Really <laughs> incredible highs and really just unfathomable lows. Yeah, I mean, you didn't win the West because you lost to freaking Memphis and, or, or excuse me, uh, Florida and Arkansas. Obviously, they lose to Memphis too, which was probably one of the worst coach games of the Hugh Freeze era, if not the worst coach. I think I was actually having that conversation. We we're sitting there after practice the other day, and Neil was doing a mailbag or something. He was asking. What like other people thought was the worst coach game of the Hugh Freeze era? That's got to be up there, right? I mean, that Arkansas game was pretty poorly coached too. Because the thing that no one talks about in that Arkansas game is the idiotic call to go for it on fourth down at midfield that Ole Miss didn't get, and even had to block the field goal to get into overtime, which is just wild to me. Because if they make that field goal, like not that they were going to fire him, but that's a fireable offense. Like you can't do that. <laughs> like yeah, that's that's literally how dudes get fired. On that note, I guess as far as the schedule. Since we've last done this podcast, the 2020 Ole Miss football schedule was released, um, which is actually a lot more interesting than I thought it was because you play Houston, you play Baylor in Houston to open the year. So that's the second time in three years Ole Miss will open the season at NRG Stadium. Um, you get SEMO, and then the SEC did this team absolutely no favors because their first three SEC games are Auburn at LSU, Alabama. That's one in three. I mean, that's zero and three and one and two. Absolute best case scenario, unless something dramatic has happened. Yeah, that's not good. But also, it it kind of sets you up for a finish that, um, yeah, you, like the Tennessee finish. Tennessee every year for the last decade, it feels like, got four games against 
Kentucky and a walkthrough and Vanderbilt, and they would finish the year on a high, and everybody would talk about Tennessee is going to be really good next season because they won their last four games. Ole Miss can do the same thing, finishing with Arkansas and Georgia Southern and Mississippi State. I mean, I guess you still have to go to Texas A&M, which is never easy, but you get them after a bye week. It's just a tough schedule. And this is a little cynical of me, but everybody's reaction to every schedule that got released was, wow, that's brutal. Well, it's the SEC West. I mean, you could separate those three games and still have a brutal schedule. You still have to play Alabama. You still have to play LSU. You still have to play Texas A&M. You have to play Auburn. That's never going to be easy, no matter where you put them on your schedule. But you're right. Those three in a row is just, that's rough. Yeah, and I guess for anyone listening that hasn't seen the full schedule, I would, one, recommend getting internet. But two, (laughs) um, after that is really just, so basically what happens is you get the Baylor, you get the SEMO, and then it goes Auburn at LSU, Alabama. That gets you into October 3rd. And after that, to your point, it opens up. You go at Vanderbilt, you go Florida at home, which is the first time Florida's been in Oxford since 2007, which we discussed on the radio show the other day, which is just a crime. And they'll Um, be breaking in a new quarterback at that time. Then you get middle and a buy, and then you get a bye week after that. So there's a bye week on Halloween weekend. That's going to be a big social social W for for your boy here. Um, but so bye week on Halloween weekend, and then you uh, close the season at A and M, which that's probably going to feel like a death sentence if A and M is half as good as they're supposed to be next year. I mean, an early November game at A and M, like at that point, I feel like they're going to be really good. That's going to be a uh, that's going to be a tough one. But then you go at Arkansas, Georgia Southern, and Mississippi State, which is going to really set up for a really intriguing finish because you don't really know what Arkansas is going to be like this year. I'd like to see them this year first, obviously, because we're talking in 2020 here. But like at that point, your record is te- teetering on. Hey, is this team going to take like let's say if Ole Miss is decent this year and gets to the five to six win threshold, like that's when you, like, you go into the month of November and it's like, hey, is this team going to take a step back? Or are they going to be okay? Because you're losing the game at A&M, and then it sets up a really intriguing finish. Because at Arkansas, Georgia, Southern, Mississippi State at home, obviously that's a very possible you go 3-0, and but it's also possible you go 1-2. and Yeah, very possible. And 1-2, and you're talking 5-7 and seven or 4-8 and eight at that point, right? Like, I don't see six wins if you finish 1-2 and two with that schedule. Like, if you finish 1-2 and two against Arkansas, Georgia, Southern, Mississippi State, like, you're not winning six games. That's, what, 4-8, and 5-7 and seven at best? Yeah, and Mississippi State also will be breaking in a new quarterback. Yeah, that's uh because Tommy Stevens isn't losing that job. That that's not happening. So he will be the starter this year, and and they will have to go through the charade again. And at that point, uh, you know, we'll see if Keaton Thompson is still there. But uh, I would guess probably not because they have what's his name, Garrett Schrader, I believe that that was a Joe Moorhead uh, recruit and. The writing may be on the wall with Thompson. He just can't run this system. He was a Dan Mullen guy, and that's that's the system that he fits. So, I mean, I guess by game 12, the new quarterback thing will have worn off, but, you know, it'll just be an unknown commodity until then. On that note, let's get to these questions because uh, this is the people's holiday. We got a ton of questions, which was a nice performance. So I'm going to give the listeners a B plus on this last or two weeks ago was a D bodice. That was pretty shitty effort there. Uh, Last week, we got some better questions. Um, So we're going to start with John Macon, who says, long time listener, first time caller. You get to force Ole Miss to play a home and home with a power five opponent. Who do you choose? I, then I, I, the way this question's framed, I'm guessing it's purely for our enjoyment. Um, yeah, what's the goal? Because if, if you're talking about a game that would give Ole Miss notoriety that they can win, 
is different than, oh, I'd love to see them go to the horseshoe and play Ohio State. Yeah, exactly. And if you're talking about, you know, a vacation on Super Talk's dime, I'm probably saying UCLA. <laughs> Screw <laughs> it. Why not go Hawaii? Just go all the way out there. Exactly. Um, home and home, power five opponent. Um, I mean, all jokes aside, I'd kind of like to – I know they got Cal or whatever. I'd kind of like to see him play a Barkey Pac-12 school just because, like, that'd be a trip that Ole Miss fans would get to go out there once or whatever, wherever it was, whether you did one of the L.A. schools, whether you did Washington, whatever. Like, that would be Washington kind of cool. is the winner there. I mean, I yeah, know I, you've seen it. There, Were their stadiums located? What is it, the Puget Sound in the background? Yeah, I've driven by there. It's pretty cool. I, uh, I went to Canada when I was, like, 12, and we uh, – we did like the West Coast Canada trip, which we went up to Whistler, but we flew into Seattle and drove up. And so that whole area of the country is badass. I think I'd probably agree with that. Yeah, Washington, uh, Wisconsin, just because I, I've heard so many things about their game day environment in the town, that getting a chance to go there, uh, even though I guess they, they don't send me on the road like they send you on the road, um, that would be awesome. Uh, I think. If you're talking about a game that would give you notoriety that you can win, maybe Virginia Tech, uh, it's a name program that presumably you would be on the same level as, but you also get the novelty of the cool atmosphere or something like that. Um, Michigan State is also a team that I think that would give you notoriety, but also a game that you can win. Something like that. How about like a Miami? Because like Miami is probably taking a step back at least for the next year or two. Like if they played Miami 2020-2021, like I, would, I wouldn't feel be- terrible about Ole Miss's chances in either of those games. I'm not sure I'd favor them or much less bet on them, but they'd be okay. And that's a game that I guess gives you notoriety. Pretty sweet city for the uh, fan base to go to as well. And a team and a program that's not really that good right now. Yeah, and you can spread out. I mean, you wouldn't have to be crammed into your seat. You could put your legs over the seats in front of you and put your arms out wide. Nobody shows up to those games anymore. Yeah, that uh, that Hard Rock Stadium looks really nice, though. Every time, uh, every time the Titans go there, which the Titans have played at the Dolphins for whatever reason a lot the last couple of years. Like uh, I remember all the Titans riders taking pictures of the place when that place first opened. That is a first class establishment. That's the future. That's how everybody. If you're doing a stadium expansion or, or anything like that in the future, do it that way. Build it to where. Have you seen their seats? They have like recliners in their stadium now. Uh, just the most comfortable seats you've ever seen. And then they built this kind of like an awning almost, but it goes around the entire stadium to where you are basically in shade no matter where you sit, no matter what time of day you are in a comfortable recliner looking seat, and you're always in the shade. And even though Miami's a completely different animal, people aren't going to games anymore. They're just not. The trend around the country is people aren't showing up to games anymore because, in large part, the at-home experience is so good and it's cheaper. So they've recreated that at-home experience in their stadium. Everybody needs to do that. Like, if Ole Miss is ever going to redo their stadium, which I think the entire thing needs to be just blown up and start over, but uh, the money will never be there. They need to do it that way. Find a way to make it as comfortable as possible for your people, just like Miami did. If you got to build awnings, build awnings. If you have to install like real seats in your stadium, do that. Because if the product is not elite level and you're asking people to spend two grand on a seat license and then another 400 bucks on their ticket, they're just going to stay home. Because I bought a, a big ass TV for what the ticket costs, a season ticket costs 
without a seat licensing agreement. So I'd much rather just stay at home than pay all that kinds of money to sit on a metal bleacher in the hot Mississippi September sun. You got to find a way to get those kind of people like me into your stadium. Miami nailed it with how they built that stadium and, you know, everybody else needs to follow suit. I agree. All they're missing is a sauna to put their students in. (laughs) Um, So Jared Robinson says, who has the best Ole Miss career, Buffin, Henson, or Rodriguez? Uh, This is actually a really interesting question because uh, I think for all the the people I've talked to on staff around there has said Luis Rodriguez has had the best offseason of anyone on the team. It has a real chance to actually start for that team. I don't know if that's them just being a little firm in how good he's been or whatever, but they think he's got a chance. But to my, what I guess the larger point is respectfully, I'm probably putting that aside because I think Buffin and Henson have more upside. I, do, I think I'm going to go Blake Henson here, but I don't, I just don't know because Henson really struggled shooting the basketball the second half of last year. It's really like he had that breakout game at Mississippi state that really vaulted Ole Miss into the national spotlight where they had that two in a week where they beat Auburn the first time at home. And then they went at state and he had kind of the game of his life, but really hit a freshman wall after that. I think I'm going to go Henson, but man, they, most of this staff seems convinced, and I, I, they, I see why they have reason. If Buffin adds weight and it becomes as good of a player or as athletic as they think he can be, they're really high on him too. So I think I'll hesitantly go Henson, but I would listen to Buffin as well. Yeah, Buffin's game will be great if he just adds a jump shot. Just the ability to make outside shots, because he's good at everything else, right? I mean, he defends well, he's athletic, he, his dribble drive is pretty good too. If he just adds that J, because the, the amount of times he would get a pass on the perimeter – and he wouldn't even get a pursuit on defense. They would just dare him to shoot, and then he wouldn't. If he can just add that element to his game and, and space the floor a little bit now, especially with the expanded three-point line, it's going to be a little bit more spacing. With his ability to get to the basket, and it, as you said, if he adds weight, I, it was just one game, and he didn't play much this year, but I remember watching the, the end of the Alabama game where they just got smoked in Tuscaloosa, and Luis Rodriguez looked explosive in that game. And, and I, I don't know if I texted you or, or if I texted Richard and said, who the hell is this kid? And he, just, he jumped out of the screen at you with how explosive he was, but he only just played, a, a, what was it, half of the second half at the end he of that the game where they, they were getting blown out. last year when they had no depth and no foul trouble. Like when they really got in a tight spot in foul trouble, it's like, hey, we're going to see if we're sur- going to survive at least Luis Rodriguez for seven minutes. But to your point, he looked overwhelmed at times, but he also showed some pretty good athleticism. I mean, he's a big wing player. He's like 6'6". Six, six. I don't really know what he is because like you, you were saying earlier, I haven't seen enough of him, but they're really, the coaching staff is really high on him. I just don't know what he is, which is why I'm kind of discounting him, I guess, for, for this debate. But I kind of agree on the Buffin thing, too, because Buffin's deal last year is, one, he didn't shoot the ball very well, and two, he just wasn't simply strong enough to play down in the post for long stretches of time. And Kermit, that was something Kermit Davis had said since, I mean, September, October. He was like, look, we're going to play Henson and Buffin down in the post some just because we're going to have to, but they're not going to fare very well because they're not strong enough. I mean, he was literally just kind of laying it out how it was. So I'll be interested to see what Buffin is when he's presumably bigger and stronger this year because if he adds a little bit of a jump shot and is bigger in the post, he could be a bit of a monster. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, he's a perfect three, right? Uh, if he can add that jump shot, he doesn't need to be playing on the low post anyway, but if they can get him uh, maybe as, as a good wing instead of just, and they had to by default last year because they had nobody else that could do it, but getting him away from the block, with that length would be massive. 
Yeah, I uh, I definitely agree with that. They're going to be an interesting team to watch this year. And if you're talking about what Kermit Davis, Kermit Davis wants to do in his brand of basketball, he really wants basically four Blake Hensons and K.J. Buffins and a point guard and just kind of go from there and play off that. Will that work with this new age of SEC and lottery picks and all that stuff? Yeah, I think so. Like I, um, I, I mean, I think it can. Um, I, I just, I, I have a hard time doubting him at this point because he took a bunch of misfit pieces to the NCAA tournament in a year they were projected to finish dead last in the conference. So if he actually gets his ideal pieces in his system, like they have to be better by default, right? Like, I mean, yeah, you would think like, so. And they're, they're going to be deep, man. That, that trouble that they had last year, especially with, with the guys that they had to play on the block, they're not going to have that issue. No. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just don't know what else Kermit Davis could want with this team other than maybe a back-to-the-basket center that doesn't score a rebound. Well, a lottery pick would be nice. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if Nike's a... doing the, the funneling players thing to Ole Miss just yet. Not quite, but uh, I guess FSU got a good one. Um, <laughs> hate to bring up State, but wanted to know y'all's thoughts. What would their uh, – he misspelled there. That's why I'm confused here. What would their football record have been last year at Mullinett State? I'm saying 10-2 minimum, and I really actually genuinely believe that. If Mullen's the head coach of State in 2018, I think they go 10-2. Um, at a minimum, uh, let me pull up the schedule. I mean, that's a college football playoff dark horse if I've ever seen one, if Mullen's there. I mean, if Mullen does his offense, learns how to, like, you know, learns – I mean, does what Nick Fitzgerald presumably was doing the last couple of years. Obviously, it was kind of a different year for Nick Fitzgerald in that system. Last year, under Mullen, that's a 10-win team at, at minimum, and I think that's a real college football playoff dark horse. Honestly, if you're an Ole Miss fan and you don't like seeing State succeed, you dodged a bullet there because that team could have been really damn good. I mean, that was the best defense in college football, and that offense was not going to be that bad with Mullen operating it. So, like, that's a team that you're going into the Alabama game thinking, okay, this is a year where maybe someone's kind of built up enough depth to actually hang with them and beat them. Yeah, that was a square peg in a round hole if there ever was one. Hey, so uh, just as I pulled up their schedule as a reminder, so they scored seven points in a loss at Kentucky where they gave up 28. But if you remember, that game was close up until the fourth quarter. And because they couldn't move the ball at all offensively, they couldn't control the clock. Kentucky ran away with it late. They just, Mississippi State was gassed by the end of that ball game. But, um, the final score in that game is not 28-7, to seven, and I would venture to guess that on, on, with Dan Mullen, they win that game, even though it was a 21-point difference. They definitely do not lose to Florida 13-6 to six at all, and they definitely don't go to Baton Rouge and only put up a three spot. I, I think I, they win both of those games. I think they would destroy Florida. I don't think if Mullen, I think if Mullen are there, that game wouldn't have been close. And it doesn't. I don't even care who you put on the other sideline. Like you can go McElwain, whatever the hell else you want to do. They're winning that game at home by a lot of points. And then I think they go down there and beat LSU because LSU is very. I mean, this is a bad. I don't even know if this is a word. Very not explosive offensively, and what's as good as State's defense was. If that's Dan Mullen's offense, I think they win that game down there too because they lost. However, the hell they lost. But Nick Fitzgerald threw like three picks in his own territory, did he not? Yeah, he did. And if you look at his splits, and I'm pulling those up right now as well, I probably should have had them. I, I didn't see the, I didn't see this question on there. Uh, he threw too much, quite simply threw the football too much. And I know that's the system. And sorry, June, I'm sorry. I just ran over my dog with my chair. Um, <laughs> You're good. But this is a podcast is of three. Yeah. Um, it, it is a system that requires you to throw the football. That, that's what he wants to do. But when you have the skill set of Nick Fitzgerald, which is 
it always was, despite what some people will try to convince you or tried to convince you going into last year, he was never good at throwing the football. Never. He was too inconsistent. I mean, he could throw the ball 70 yards, but it didn't matter because it was not accurate. He was never an accurate passer of the football. But if you just focused on, on the run and then only threw if you had to, like Dan Mullen would have done with that offense, they, they could have beaten anybody. And Joe Moorhead, after practice this week, talked about, uh, well, last year we had uh, teams that would just stack the box on us, so we had to throw. Uh, teams stacked the box on Dan Mullen as well, and they still won games, and they still would have won games a year ago. They, they just forced the pass under Fitzgerald, and now presumably they've got a guy in Stevens that can actually throw the ball accurately. At least that's what uh, that's what it looks like on paper, uh, but just completely forced a square peg into a round hole, and that's why they lost five games. Uh, I'm with you at 10-2 and two minimum. Um, probably would have won 11 games with a bowl win. They're still not beating Alabama, but they would have been the favorite in every other game on the schedule. That's for sure. With that defense and how good they were, no doubt. Yeah, and I keep trying to come up with the right analogy when talking about the Moorhead-Fitzgerald thing. And because it's a complicated deal, because I'm not sure, like I'm not sure he deserves as much heat as he can as when you inherit a guy that really can't throw the football at all. Mullen uses quarterback in such a unique way. You can't expect Moorhead to be able to do the same thing because there aren't very many Dan Mullins in the world. That's why he got the Florida job. But at the same time, given Colin Hill, however many carries he got a game, I don't have it in front of me. I know it was not enough. His coaching malpractice, like he should probably be sued for that. And so, like I, I just, I it, it's a complicated legacy, I guess, for that first year because, like, like. Like Mullen to like Fitzgerald to me is like when you play golf and like you're out like you're somewhere else until you use rental clubs and it like feels okay but it's not really the same like you know you'd be playing better with your golf clubs obviously I'm left-handed I don't get to use anyone's golf clubs because no one's left-handed shit kind of sucks um, but like you see what I mean like he it's like he's an athletic guy but he couldn't throw the ball downfield I just have a hard time faulting Moorhead specifically for Fitzgerald but everything else around it was rough like. The Kylan Hill thing, the just how how bad the offense was in general is really inexcusable because they did have enough talent. They weren't very good receiver wise, but they had a good offensive line, good running backs, and an interesting skill set quarterback. We'll leave it that way. Five losses is way too many. Yeah, and I, I do blame him for. And at media days, he he mentioned it, which good on him for for talking about it. But the things he said about you know clear a space off your mantle for a trophy and talked about championships the second he walked on campus that is um that is not something that he should have done um so i guess you know he should be blamed for that but should have been a much better football team last year and that's why their schedule sets up really well this season but that's why when people talk about uh mississippi state and Oh, it's definitely, you know, that's an eight-win team again, no doubt. Like, they, they should definitely beat Kansas State. And they should, de- going to Tennessee and, and winning at Rocky Top, people are just writing off that they're going to be able to do that. And, and people should really slow their roll. I expect their defense to still be pretty good. They've got maybe the best little middle linebacker in the SEC right now in Errol Thompson. That dude can absolutely play. And uh, they return Cam Dantzler in the secondary, who is the best uh, cornerback or defensive back in the SEC that you've never heard of. A guy can really play, and they've got some veterans up front, but depth is definitely an issue on the defensive line. I still think they're going to be good defensively. I like Bob Shoup. Uh, remove what he did at Tennessee because that was Butch Jones coach Tennessee. He was really good at his other two stops uh, before he went to Mississippi State. However, that's a team that won eight games in the regular season a year ago, and they do not have the talent 
across the board on defense that they did a year ago. And now you're either going to rely on a transfer quarterback or a guy that has shown in his limited action that he's not capable. This is probably harsh, but Keaton Thompson is should not be a starting quarterback in the SEC based on what he has shown you so far. He's, not, he's just simply is not good enough to do it. That's why they brought Tommy Stevens in in the first place. And now suddenly they're going to be just as good as they were a year ago. I, I would slow down on that. The schedule sets up pretty well. But just signing off on wins at Tennessee, for example, just be careful when you do stuff like that because Tennessee should be better. It's on the road, and you did lose the SEC sack leader, uh, the best defensive lineman, potentially one of the best defensive linemen, at least in the SEC, and a guy that's going to start in the NFL and be an impact safety this year. You don't just replace that and be just as good. So I know this isn't a Mississippi State podcast, and I kind of went in the weeds, but it's just, you know, maybe a quarterback changes everything, and he very well could, but just signing off on eight or nine wins with this team is just that might end up being a mistake for you uh, come November. I would agree with that. Uh, Chris Woodward says, should Ole Miss and State continue to schedule, quote, unquote, easy non-conference games the week before the Egg Bowl this year and next? Um, so I don't know this for a complete fact, so I hesitate to say this. I don't think they have complete control over that. I don't think. Because you have to factor in the SEC scheduling at some point, right? Like, I don't think they have complete control over who they play the week before the Egg Bowl, right? Because if they, they'd probably have a tune-up or a bye every week if they had the opportunity, would they not? Yeah, probably so. I, I think the SEC should outlaw that altogether. In, in a perfect world, and I, I don't think this will ever happen, but my idea would be, I don't care about eight versus nine conference games. The SEC schedule is tough enough. They don't need to add another one. But make sure... I think the Pac-12 does this, and I think the Big Ten does this too. I could be wrong, but I know one of the Power Five leagues does this. You have to play your non-conference games to start the season and consecutively because the the last nine games are conference games. And so I I wish the SEC would do that and then give you two bye weeks. You have to play your non-conference games in the first four weeks, but they give you an additional bye because the schedule is so grueling. The the second to last week of the season the last few years has just been embarrassing. And I can't believe the league lets that go on. Yeah, for a selfish consumer reason, it's a very shitty slate of football. So, like, you get down there, you get to the last week of September, and you're like, what the hell is this? Like, it's November. Like, why are they playing these games? I uh, I completely agree with that. Uh, Chris also asked, what's the ceiling for Ole Miss football in 2019? I'll hear an argument for seven wins. I'm not really listening to anything beyond that. So, seven and five, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, ceiling is – if everything goes right with your team and you catch a couple of breaks with everybody else, right? So ceiling yeah, I mean, is not something that I think they'll do, but, but, but Auburn could be bad. Arkansas could be bad again. Um, you know, Texas A&M could be beat up by that point. Missouri has a bull ban, potentially. And now Kelly Bryant's hurt. Now their tight end is hurt. It, so if you're talking ceiling, it's something that will not happen unless everything imaginable goes right. So I would say it would be eight. No, that's fair. That's fair. There is a world. There's a world where they get to eight. If every literally everything on earth breaks their way, they have no bad luck. They're completely healthy on the offensive line. There's eight teams they can beat on the schedule. I guess I'll put it that way. They have a chance at beating eight. So I'll actually agree with that. I'd go. So like 
But realistically, I'm going seven and five. If you really, really want to get nuts, I'll listen to an argument eight and four. I don't think either one of those are happening. I've been on record for a couple months. I think it's probably five and seven. And if they can get to that six win, that's a monumental step forward for the program. But like if you're talking about like you're saying just I mean, if literally everything happens for them and it's the greatest year of Matt Luke's life and he wins the lottery in Tunica or whatever, eight and four, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, the ceiling, I mean, the floor could be as low as two. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'll, I mean, seriously, the, the floor could be as low as two, it, because if you're talking ceiling floor, floor means a lot of things go wrong. Alex Gibbons doesn't come back for Memphis. They, they get another injury at some point on the offensive line before that game. Then they go lose to Memphis. Well, Arkansas comes in feeling really good. Uh, I forget his name. The guy that transferred from SMU at quarterback. Well, what's his name? Ben Hicks. Yeah, Ben Hicks comes in. Ole Miss still can't uh, stop the run, and Arkansas runs the ball down their throat. They lose to Arkansas. They beat Southeast Louisiana because, of course, they do. Cal comes in with an NFL defense. There's like five dudes on that defense that will be drafted in the NFL this year. Suddenly they lose to Cal. They get blown up in Tuscaloosa. Now, I mean, it could really unravel to the point where they only beat Selah and New Mexico State. I don't think that's going to happen either, but floor is if things start going poorly. Yeah, I agree with that. Are they playing New Mexico or New Mexico State? I don't. Even, I don't remember. I should know that. That's a terrible question to ask. Um, it shouldn't make a difference, but I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think it kind of <laughs> does. Um, New Mexico State is awful year. historically. It's yeah, New Mexico they, State. It's the Aggies. Okay. Um, here's one that might date you a little bit. Um, who is better slash who did you like more? Ethan Flatt or Seth Adams? I'm not completely convinced they're not the same person, honestly. <laughs> um, so this is this is what end of David Cutcliffe, beginning of Ed Orgeron. When Eli Manning left, there was a black hole left at Ole Miss's program at quarterback. They went with the three quarterback system in 2004. They played Michael Spurlock, Ethan Flatt, and Robert Lane. Um, so I. Uh, <laughs> That's I don't even time, remember man. where Seth is all you. I have no idea. <laughs> well, dude, it's like, it's like, uh, who did you like more? I really didn't have a preference to be completely honest. Who was better? I mean, look, I'm trying to be respectful here, but that's like asking, like, Taylor Polk, Dietrich being Dukes. Like, what are we talking about here? Um, <laughs> I think I'll go Seth Adams because I'm not completely convinced that Ethan Flat could throw the ball further than 20 yards down the field. Like, I think post patterns were a big issue for him. Um, and I, we have a random listener, and by the very off chance Ethan Flat listens to this podcast, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. Um, so I think I'm going to go Seth Adams just because Ethan Flat really, literally, could not throw the ball more than 20 yards. Um, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think you phrased that question right. Who did you like more, like, or who is better? I, I just, you probably could have gone with who is worse. Um, let's see. Um, beyond tackling, what's one thing you want to see early on from the Ole Miss defense? Uh, I got one. They, I kind of want to see what they do on an exterior, if they could generate an exterior pass rush because they just really struggled to generate a pass rush from the outside last year. Uh, they really, really, really missed Marquise Haynes and a couple of those other guys off the 2017 defense. So I guess aside from tackling and getting lined up in the right spot, which is honestly a hilarious question because he's being 100% serious and he has to preface it with beyond tackling better. What do you want to see? I think I want to see if they can get a pass rush from the outside. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And by the way, Marquise Haynes was exceptional last night in the preseason game. I think he had 
three tackles for loss, two of which were sacks and four quarterback hits in limited action last night. He's a damn good football player, and he's a really good dude. I'm happy for him. Yeah, and uh, things you want to see, honestly, uh, this is going to sound so stupid, but it's true. I want to see them have an entire game where when the ball is snapped, you don't have multiple guys looking at the sidelines with their hands up because they don't have the call. <laughs> That's right. That's one of those where you got the famous line from Kadir Shepard at the end of the Arkansas game last year. They were asking him what happened at some play, and he just looked at us and he goes, I effed up. I mean, seriously, they didn't do that once in the spring game. I even tweeted that. I said, wow, this is remarkable. They are lined up and ready at the snap. It's amazing. But for for how simple they were defensively, the fact that it either took them such a long time to get the calls in or the players on the field were confused at what the calls were was embarrassing. And the players are always thrown under the bus. Oh, we just got to limit the menu because they're not getting it. And – you got so simple to where you stop disguising blitzes. That's not on the players. They are not. I mean, I mean, they're not brain dead. They are humans. It, it literally got to the point on third downs where they would just go. It was like watching backyard football. Like if they were blitzing on a third down, it was just dude standing there and then running forward. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, not, it's, it's, it's like military tactics from the 1700s. They, they can't take us all, so let's just run at them. <laughs> That's how they're going to storm Area 51, too. Just uh, exactly. Can't kill us all. Yeah, Ole Miss was trying to see them aliens last year because they sure as hell didn't tackle anybody. Um, That's it. It's getting the play in, lining up correctly, um, and disguising blitzes, mixing up the looks you give, um, multiple looks in the secondary, that kind of stuff. And presumably you'll see it because they have – uh, a defensive coordinator who is qualified uh, for his job, but it's more than just him. It's every position group needs to be better at that, but th- that's what you want to see. Even if they lose the ball game, if they are uh, lining up correctly, if they are making adjustments at the line of scrimmage, if they have an unbalanced look, if uh, they disguise blitzes, if they disguise coverages, if they mix up their looks, that kind of stuff um, is just something you didn't see for the last two years. Joe Lenshark, do, 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 do. God, the internet's such a weird place. Asked, you're Keith Carter. You misspelled Keith, Chief. Try that again. <laughs> um, and you get to choose one of the three scenarios for the coming year. Which do you take and why? Football going to a bowl game, and he says parentheses six and six. Basketball lead eight or baseball getting to a national championship. I guess the last one you prefaced it with really kind of makes it an argument, but it's 100% football getting to a bowl game. You got to get this shit right. Yeah, the answer is never baseball. As much as Ole Miss fans love baseball, it's never baseball. Baseball doesn't make any money. It has no national imprint. The College World Series ratings were excellent and still got beat by softball. It's Baseball just does not move the needle nationally. The answer is always either football or basketball, depending on the scenario. But this season, get back to a bowl game. I mean, they, they what did they do? 8% budget cuts across the board. Season ticket sales, uh, I saw, what was it, last week, where including students, they sold under, they've sold under 40,000 tickets so far. Just that's not going well. They're losing money on that. They're not doing the alcohol thing right away either. So there's a revenue stream they're not maximizing. They need to make money. And baseball doesn't make the school any money. Basketball and limited capacity makes the school money, but it is all about football. You would rather have, if you want your school to be healthy, a great football team and terrible basketball and baseball, 
than a good basketball team and terrible and a good baseball team and terrible football. That's just how the economics of it work. You need football to get back to winning and go to bowl games and be economically uh, beneficial because the other two sports just don't make up what football is losing right now. And really not to mention, I think we've talked about this before on the show, and like this is going to make people listening upset, I think, because there's really no logic behind it. But whatever candidacy, candidacy Keith Carter has for getting the permanent job is going to be irrationally tied to the success or failure of the football team. And it makes no sense, and there's really no rhyme or reason to it, but that's really just the way it's going to be. Yeah, and you know, I've, there are a lot of reasons why they didn't do it, but he would have he could have earned a lot of favor on this alcohol thing if he pushed and made it happen. Yeah, because his predecessor uh, kind of had the pieces in place to make that happen quicker. And so I guess and he, people like you keep said, telling me on Twitter every time I talk about it, people keep saying, oh, there's a state law. He can do nothing. People in the know keep telling me that that is not true, that, yes, there yeah, are exactly. things that they have to do. Uh, there are hoops they have to jump through, but they've chosen not to jump through the hoops yet. And I mean, uh, who was it? Texas Tech that earned. in net profit from alcohol sales that they started selling in January. So basketball and baseball at Texas Tech earned quarter million dollars. And they're not very highly attended, or at least compared to Ole Miss at either one. Basketball, I guess, they have a pretty good tradition. But if you sold uh, beer at basketball and baseball for Ole Miss, they'd at least make $250K, not counting football, which is the only thing that makes money. That could have earned, I think, some pretty good favor if you want to keep that job by by executing that and doing that right away. And even if you don't agree with selling alcohol in stadiums, I'm of the opinion that Ole Miss cannot afford to not maximize on whatever profit that they can make. Even if it makes some fans mad, uh, people with kids, by the way, people bring kids to sporting events, concerts, things that serve alcohol all the time. It's only SEC football where it hasn't really been prominent. So it it won't change anything. But Ole Miss cannot afford to not maximize whatever profit that they can get. So it's kind of disappointing to see that they're not doing this because they can't afford not to. They have no money right now. And you've got to do whatever you can to – I mean, the locker room needs upgrading. The facility needs upgrading. The stadium needs upgrading. Baseball – eventually we'll need some upgrades. You've got to do whatever you can to get that money back. Can't just turn your nose up at a, a possible revenue stream. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's why it's the answer. That's the simplest way to go about it. I mean, that's that's why the answer is football. Um, Jay Luckett says if you could give truth serum to one Ole Miss athlete and one Ole Miss coach, who would it be? Ooh, um, I'm going to go... Barney Farrar and Bo Wallace with Laramie Tunzel as an honorable mention. That's a great question. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I I was originally going to say Tunzel, but honestly, with the way the Hugh Freeze-Bo Wallace relationship was at times, particularly towards the end of that tenure, I would really just like to dope up Bo Wallace and pick his brain. Well, I'd want to hear from Hugh Freeze. <laughs> I just... Would <laughs> Barney would be able to tell you more stories, but I, I want to know what's really going on in the mind of Hugh. Forgive me for not believing that true serum would work on Hugh Freeze because he might be a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
It's very probably good point. a good answer. You have, it's a very good answer. I'm just not convinced truth serum would work on that guy. And that's probably all I'm going to say on it. Um, Jason Bauman, Jason Bauman says, does Kelly Bryant deserve a championship ring? Yeah, I think so. I don't think they win the – so I'm sure you all talked about this on radio yesterday. I was obviously off. Not on radio, but I think so. I, I I don't I don't view Kelly Bryant as quitting on his team, and I don't think they win the AM game without him. So give him a ring. I don't see how this is that complicated. I think this is a bad look for Dabo. Maybe you have a different opinion. It's, I mean, slightly, but only because I don't think it matters either way. And in our yeah, business, that's true. This, this not is having just, an opinion, just yeah. having something to argue about, right? Right. It, because in our business, I guess it's bad to to you know straddle the line. But if he would have given them a ring, I I couldn't have cared less because. And in the NFL or in the NBA, if you get traded or whatever, you still get a ring. Um, he played four games. He was on the team. He helped them beat Texas A&M. If they gave him a ring, that's great. Nice gesture. But now that they didn't give him a ring, I guess I understand that too. Because he did leave your program. He was no longer on your team. So if you don't want to give him a ring, you know, whatever. Maybe because of how sensitive everything is, it may be a bad look in recruiting and somebody may use that against you, but it's not going to matter. I just don't care either way. If you would have given him one, that's cool. Uh, nice gesture. Now that he didn't, I get it. Whatever. Peyton Box asked, who's the best recruiter on the Ole Miss football coaching staff? They've had a decent bit of turnover. Um, I'm going to eliminate recruiting specialists like guys that are just in the recruiting things because I think this guy's just talking about the coach. I think I'm going to say Peeler right now, and I would have said Summerall last year. That sounds about right, but we all know that the best recruiter is the guy that hires uh, the the girls to come in from Memphis uh, to hook up with the players because apparently, uh, according to some that wear tinfoil hats, uh, they can't just do that on their own. Yeah, exactly. The uh, the uh, D one athletes need tons of help with that. Yeah, absolutely. They need to to have girls shipped in because there's not enough uh, in Oxford for for them to enjoy themselves at all. Yeah, if there's anyone that does, it's me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have you heard anything about Alex Given's status since going to Jackson? No. Um, we'll might get an update today. I don't think so, just because the defensive staff is mostly talking today. Um, so we'll probably We're not going to hear much at all, are we? Yeah, no, because I don't think there's much wraps. to learn. I don't think that, but I just don't think there's much to learn. I think he had the procedure, and like you know, surgery's kind of a bitch. So like, it's just like, how does he recover? I just, I think that's different for each person um, that has surgery and all that. So like, uh, I don't think you hear much. I just don't. I'm not sure there's much to learn. Um, I, I would say no news is probably good news with regards to that because uh, if you hear something, it's probably because he's had a setback, right? You would think so, and I, I just I don't think they're going to give much anyway unless it – see, I don't think they would – if he's making progress, if he's ahead of schedule, why would, why would they tell anybody that? Exactly. In a perfect world, they'll show up in Memphis, and Givens will get off the bus and warm up, and Memphis will have to deal with him then. Or Memphis will prepare as if they're getting Alex Givens, and if he's not ready, they will not know until Ole Miss gets off the bus and he's in street clothes. There's just no benefit to giving us a real update until that game starts. It's, it's gamesmanship, and it really doesn't matter if Memphis knows or not that he's playing because they're going to prepare for him. But any advantage that you can get in, in this season opener when you have two new coordinators, two new systems, Mike Norvell and his offense is a known commodity. So you have a leg up on Memphis in the known information category. So don't give them anything. Don't tell anybody anything about Alex Gibbons. If he's healthy, don't tell us. 
just have him get off the bus ready to play. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, I think the I think we probably just settled it with that is just really the best the best I guess approach to take with that. If you're an Ole Miss fan or a person of interest, is no news is good news with Givens because again, if he has like if there is news, that's because something probably went wrong as opposed to went right. Um, let's see what the next question we got. Damn, we got a bunch of questions today. If uh, truly your white claw, choose wisely. So. Uh, I was not an experienced veteran with either one of these, but uh, we got an afternoon on the beach yesterday, so I drank a, I'll say quite a few of these, uh, both of these. Um, I don't really care. I think they taste the same. Is that bad? I haven't had either one. I have no idea. And I'm not doing that because I'm a macho tough guy that only drinks beer. I just, I haven't had a chance to have either one. So I was the same way um, because this has been a big thing, what, for 12 months to 18 months now it's been year year and a half to where i feel like these have come on the scene and been really big and i just really haven't like i haven't drank any like i I just it wasn't like i drink when i drink i really just solely drink beer um i I go craft beer coors light mostly is pretty much kind of my my entire drinking repertoire i kind of look like an idiot at steakhouses when everyone drinks like nice liquor drinks and wine and i'm like hey how about your finest coors light buddy um so So you never do you never do whiskey or anything at all I just I I, I I'm, trying, I'm trying to use my words carefully here. I don't have a sophisticated taste in wine. I don't dislike wine. I'll drink it, but I don't have a sophisticated enough taste to order it at like restaurants and stuff and like you know be a wine connoisseur. Like I'm not sniffing the wine when the guy yeah. brings it, and things go downhill quickly if I drink too much liquor. Um, so I'm I'm pretty much a pretty pretty solid beer guy there. I will say these the truly in the white calls. They're honestly, it's a hell of an invention. It's like a Switzer, I think, or whatever you want to call it. But uh, seltzer. It's, it has a, seltzer. That's yeah, <laughs> Switzer. I just made up a, a word. Um, <laughs> they taste really good. Like they have fruit flavors, and they're very light. Like you could drink a lot of them. Like particularly on the beach, it's a really nice beach drink. Like in the days, I feel like this is like the modern technology of Bud Light Lime. Like back in the day, they made Bud Light Lime, and everyone's like, this is the greatest thing to drink on the beach. And then Michelob Ultra kind of did their thing with those uh, pomegranates or limes or whatever the hell they are. And this is even like a step up because you can drink a lot of them. It's a high alcohol concentration, and they're not heavy on you at all. I mean, those things go down like water. So I'm not anti either. I don't have a ton of experience. I'll probably go White Claw because uh, truly to me, tasted a bit more like a mixed drink uh, than a White Claw did. So that's my answer. Yeah, no laws when you're drinking claws, man. <laughs> and then we got some Buzz Lightyear gif after that that just said the claw, and it's a white claw in a big, like, one of those claw machine games that you used to play in the movie theater when you were 12 to try to score some points with a girl. Um, going back to baseball, explain the scholarship advantage Vandy has. No, thank you. I don't want to do that today. Well, the short version, they are a private school. Private schools can give out money to anybody they see fit, and so they can give academic money uh, to baseball players that would effectively turn them into full scholarship players. Ole Miss and Mississippi State cannot do that because they are public schools. Every money that is offered to any student has to be offered to every student based on base qualifications. So them being a private school allows them to give academic money to whoever the hell, whoever the hell they want to give it to, and that's why all their players are on full scholarship. Yeah, it's technically an in-need thing, but if you throw 95 with your left hand, you're in need, amazingly. Yeah, they find a way to, to make it need-based, for sure. What does your favorite color taste like? This man burned the devil's lettuce last night. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't have know how to answer that. How do you even answer that? <laughs> I think that was kind of the point. Um, well, like blue Kool Aid. Yeah, blue is my favorite color. 
So whatever blue Kool-Aid tastes like, that's what blue tastes like. Yeah, to hell with it. Uh, RebelFan68, who I've said every time you've asked a question, you really missed an opportunity there. Um, which true freshman will see the field in the first two games this season? Um, okay, I think a safe bet's probably Jerrion Ely, and I think another safe bet is Nick Broker. Um, there's going to be a couple more on the offensive line. I'm not really sure elsewhere. Uh, maybe Mingo? I don't – I mean, I'm trying to think. I don't think many true freshmen are going to play the defensive side, so I'll give you Ely, a couple offensive linemen, and Mingo. What's Ladarius Cox look like in practice? Because that's a big old dude. That's a good one. If you're looking for one on the defensive side of the ball, he's looked good and he's turned some heads. And a couple of the older guys, really, without even like being prompted to uh, say much about it, have mentioned that he's he's shown out. So that's a good one on the defensive side of the ball. Um, yeah, it's Connor Broker and Ely. Play, I think. Uh, who was that? Snoop Connor, they have a running back room that's four deep right now, um, and Snoop Connor looks very much in the mix. I think the spring, for if you talk about an early enrollee that benefited that's not named a quarterback, uh, I think that really helps Snoop Connor. So I think he'll get some carries. That's another one. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the, the usage of running back. So back to what Rich Rodriguez said after practice. Uh, you asked him about tight ends, and uh, he talked about how they're going to do some two, di- two tight end sets. And, I mean, even like 22 personnel with two backs and two tight ends. That was such – hey, talk about Ole Miss's red zone problems a year ago, and this is not really a unique take, but in my opinion, most of their problems came from they provided the defense with the same look no matter where they were on the field. Uh, you had third and goal from the one or whatever, third and short inside the red zone, and they would line up in four wides with uh, one running back in the backfield and try to just run their exact offense at any point in the field. And that led to it not working. That, that's the kind of stuff that Cole Kublik, who was on our radio show, in case you missed it a while back, and called Ole Miss's offensive play calling last year irresponsible. And that's the kind of stuff he was talking about. Uh, in short yarded situations, they would provide the same look to the defense. And so if a defense would stack the box on Ole Miss, every offensive lineman would have to dominate their one-on-one matchup, and the running back would still have to make a guy miss in space. And when it's third and one, and you're running up the middle. There is no space. You, you have to win uh, the body count up front, at least generally speaking. And so now that they're working in two back sets and, and two tight end sets in some cases, or even just one tight end set, where you can provide multiple looks and, and win the numbers battle just from you have more guys to block less defenders, you will be better in short yardage and in the red zone. So having those kind of looks will be so refreshing to watch because third and, third and one from the 18-yard line, and they're running four wides with one back. They're not going to do that this year because they will be able to give you multiple looks and, and win numbers battles and use tight ends and have extra bodies and, and actually look different inside of the red zone or in short yardage instead of running the same damn thing no matter where you were on the field. What would the title of your autobiography be is the next question he asked. What a great question. Uh, days confused and too short. How about that? Do as I say, not as I do. That's a really good one, too. <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's, that's a great question. And then the last one he asked is, I've never heard current player interviews on the podcast or current players not allowed to do so. No, they are. Um, I would say it's probably easier to get done in 
basketball or baseball because they're less paranoid with the access. Um, I should probably have done a better job. This podcast was very new during baseball season. I probably should have had a couple players on by the end of the year. Um, football, they're a little more hesitant, but I think if you really, really wanted to get a player on, they'd probably let you depending on who it was. But that's just not really a common practice in today's widespread paranoia. Uh, I guess that's a decent way to sum that up. Um, not answering that. I'm not answering that either. Got a couple of buddies messing with me. Um, with, with you being in Jackson, on average, how many potholes do you hit in curse at? Uh, way too many is probably the best answer. What was that question? If you live with, when you're in Jackson, how many potholes do you hit and how many times do you curse at them? Oh, man. Um, I lived in Bellhaven for a year. And driving down State Street uh, was like your own personal roller coaster every day. <laughs> it's the worst. In, it's in the that neighborhood, absolute too, worst. I mean, beautiful neighborhood, great old homes, great people in the neighborhood, like active people. Like every day I'd get home from work and we would sit on our front porch and like have a beer and wave at like people walking their babies by and stuff. It's just a really active neighborhood, great people every single day, no matter what day it was. There was a water main leak. There was water flowing up from the road down the street at some point in the neighborhood every single day I lived there for 365 of them every single day. (laughs) Oh, Jackson's infrastructure is something else, man. I went home when I was a senior in college. I may have been a junior. Uh, one of the things that's not a perk about this job is you don't get to go home from holidays a ton when I was in school and doing student media, particularly covering baseball, which made my mother very upset. But uh, so I tried to surprise my mom on Easter one year um, coming home early. I think I skipped whatever Sunday game or maybe I always had a Saturday game. I don't remember. But point, point of the story is I uh, I was going home for literally nine hours. I was going to go home. I was going to do the church service. I was going to eat with my mom and drive immediately back up to Oxford. And I hit a pothole so violently that it bit my wheel and I had to get a new wheel. And I was in Jackson for a total of seven hours, probably, if that. Of course. So that's a, uh, yeah, Jackson, uh, Jackson's, Jackson's got some issues. Um, if Ole Miss football won the national championship this year, would it be the biggest sports miracle of all time? And would it have a 30 for 30? Ole Miss is probably getting a 30 for 30 at some point anyway. As far as the national title, maybe. But I watched Tiger Woods win a Masters this year, so I don't know. Yeah, but he was the number one player in the world at one point. I mean, he's the <laughs> That's best true. golfer There's to ever the live. History there. Yeah, yeah that, I think that would later. be. And I'm a big miracle on ice guy. And I still think, no matter what else you want to throw at me, the United States, a team filled with a bunch of college kids that had played together for a couple months, beating what was at the time the best hockey team of professionals, adult men, ever assembled in the history of the sport, the way they did when there was economic turmoil and uh, the Cold War and stuff was still going on and there was a lot of civil unrest. That is the greatest sports upset in all time to me, still to this day. Not App State, Michigan, none of that. However, if Ole Miss wins a national championship in football this season, that will surpass the miracle on ice. I'd probably just – yeah, uh, yeah, that that surpasses everything. I don't, I, I don't even, I can't even think of. I mean, other than like, I can't even think of anything that would come compare to that. So yes, that would be the biggest sports miracle of all time. Uh, now that El Nino has stopped, what are y'all's take on the 2019 Atlantic hurricane season forecast? I, I don't know. I'm not a weather guy. I'm a, I go to games for a living. 
Oh, I, I'm an old man now with a kid on the way and stuff. So I read like weather reports all the time. And my wife and I like talk about, oh, it's going to rain on Saturday. Um, we're actually supposed to get a, a pretty significant hurricane season this year. The, uh, what, what was, what did the article say? Like the conditions are ripe for a above average hurricane season. So you've got that to look forward to. Yeah. I just need a, uh, I need a Trump tweet about how the, uh, how maybe like the hurricanes are colder than usual. So global warming's a myth, maybe mix that <laughs> into the mix. That'd be a, <laughs> that would really top off my hurricane season. Um, Will Chad Kelly be a QB1 in the next five years? That's a really good question. I'm going to say no, because until he proves that he can stay out of trouble and remain on a roster, I don't think so. So I'm saying no for right now, but it's not because of ability. Yeah, he's got the ability to be a QB1. He showed it again last night. He was great last night. I know it's a bunch of th- against third stringers, and, and I saw uh, uh, some people on Twitter, including somebody that works uh, in media, that suggested, oh, it's just August. No, Chad Kelly would do that against anybody. He is so damn talented. He's got the arm strength. He's got the accuracy. He reads defenses really well. People in college called him a gunslinger. No, no. Yeah, he took some risks, but he wasn't a guy that just threw the ball all over the place. You only see the highlights from the Alabama game and just think, oh, he just threw the ball wherever he wanted. No, he was accurate. He read defenses well. He was poised in big games, too. I know he's kind of a lunatic off the field, but... It's like the game was never too big for him. Incredibly talented. He just can't keep it together off the field. If he could do that, what he did last night, he'd be doing on Sundays in the regular season. He's that talented. And to suggest he's not that talented is um, what Mississippi State fans in the media do. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would 100% agree with that. I think the gunslinger thing is just kind of a general cliche for anyone that plays football with a reckless abandon and Chad Kelly kind of laid it all out on the line every week. And I know that's cliche, but like you talk about a guy that like kind of didn't really give a shit if he got hit and gave up his body and all that. I think that's probably where the gunslinging mantra comes. But to your point, uh, the pure definition of the cliched phrase, that's not really accurate at all, but because you know, he would dive and get hit by two guys before he went in the end zone and stuff like that. They called him a gunslinger, and it probably had to do with the fact that Hugh Freeze used him like a video game player on steroids in 2016. Um, I mean, I don't think – I've never seen – other than maybe Cam Newton, and I'm not comparing Chad Kelly to Cam Newton, so, like, don't sell yourself on the road while listening to this. But, like, I've never seen one person in 2016 be asked to do more with the college offense than maybe Cam Newton than Chad Kelly did in 2016. I mean, he, he had to do everything. And he did it successfully. Yeah, he, against, he did it in he the best league well. in America. Every week, too, and stayed healthy until the penultimate game of the year. I guess. I guess that Georgia Southern was the second to last. No, no, third to last because he had the Shea Patterson uh, aberration at A and M the next week. Um. Well, but then the, they lost to Vanderbilt and then Mississippi State, so that was the fourth. Oh, jeez, yeah, I just had that totally wrong. God, that. That you talk about a weird season. That 2016 season was the strangest football season I've, I can remember. That was so weird. That team went from holy shit, they're going to win the national title. They're beating FSU 28 to six. To can they beat Georgia Southern with a backup quarterback? There, there was a ton of unrest um, in the offices around that facility at that time. Yeah, that season was really just gored violently by a really atrocious. 
Bush's defense being exposed and really just, like you said, unrest around the program, I think, finally got to them. Because that offseason was tumultuous. I mean, I, I remember going into that FSU week, and we were still asking those guys. And we're, you're talking three, four weeks into fall camp here. You're talking into FSU week, like two days before they are about to go to Orlando, asking them if the distractions and stuff had gotten to them. Like, that offseason was horrific, and it eventually caught up with them also with the fact that they were starting Taylor Polk at linebacker. Yeah, something like that. Uh, the last one we have, and then we'll get out of here, is given the current contract dispute, should people be concerned with wasting their first-round draft pick on Ezekiel Elliott like some people did with Le'Veon Bell last year, or do you think he will get a new contract before the start of the season? Uh, I like fantasy football questions. I'm not sure if you're spending a first-round pick on Zeke. Maybe you are. Um, I would say yes. I'm probably not drafting Zeke. No, because he seems unstable enough, at least to let this holdout go into the season. Now, maybe it's a gamble, really, if you want to take him in the first round or take him at all, but I wouldn't touch him because he very well could hold out all season long. I wouldn't be surprised if he did because it doesn't sound like, and maybe it's just propaganda, but you tell me after reading or hearing what Stephen Jones and Jerry Jones have said lately that they're going to budge. It doesn't sound like they're going to budge. And he wants number one money, and they're not going to give him number one money. So he'll set, he'll set out all season long until he gets it, which is a really just awful advice. His agent should be fired if that's what he does, but sounds like he's willing to do that. Yeah, but he's got two years left on his deal. This is not that complicated. He has no leverage. I mean, John Harris was saying it on the radio show the other day. He has literally no leverage. Like, it'd be one thing if he were a free agent at the end of the year, they were paid him like $600,000 to be criminally underpaid. Like, he's making like $9 million next year and has two years left on his contract. What are you doing? Yeah, if I was Dallas, I would trade his ass and get a wide receiver. Go win a bunch of games. And he's just constantly trouble. Like, even before the contract thing, his name is always in the news for the wrong reason. So are you really going to pay him over Dak Prescott? I know Dak Prescott is limited, but, like, Dak Prescott is not giving you nearly as many headaches. Well, and Cooper has a new contract uh, that he needs to get paid, and then A.J. Green is going to be a free agent next year. You want to get in that market? You don't give Zeke Elliott max money. So... So that was all the Mailbag Friday questions we had. Uh, so we were stepping off the roller coaster. How was it? Was it as big of a thrill as you thought? Yeah, I, I enjoyed that immensely. Yeah, it's been a fun segment. We pretty much started this because we had nothing to do in the middle of the summer. So I was like, hey, I'm going to be lazy and make the listeners give me content on Friday. And it's turned into a pretty solid segment. So I appreciate you filling in. That was good shit. Yeah, uh, anytime, man. Um. I don't think I have any other th- – anything earth-shattering happened in the sports world last night? I was kind of unplugged. Um, uh, Daniel Jones went 5-for-5 five five for a touchdown in his only drive. Uh, so wow, people are already – two Super Bowls. Yeah, they're already pulling me. Oh, look at those idiots who said that that was a bad pick. And I'll <laughs> yeah, say this yeah. on the show this afternoon. Even if he wins them 10 Super Bowls, you still didn't have to pick him at 6. At worst, you could have traded back and gotten another asset and still picked him at – anywhere between 6 and 17 when you had your next pick, you didn't have to take him at 6. Even if he's the best player in the world for the next 20 years, you could have traded back, got another asset, which you desperately need, and still picked him. Nobody else wanted him at all in that spot except for you. So you could have taken advantage of it. Instead, now we all have to eat crow because he had one good drive against the embarrassing Jets in a preseason game. Yeah, and whoever threw up the smoke screen to make it sound like they might pick him and force the Giants into doing that deserves kind of an award because that was a that was a hell of a uh, hell of a smoke screen. And, um, but they bought it. Like nobody was picking him. Nobody. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just, I, I guess, I think they're, I think in sports you have dumb GMs and smart GMs, and I think the dumb GMs really get, I, I think the smart GMs sometimes really get, like, just pleasure not only making good trades, but making dumb GMs look dumb, and I think yeah. that's probably what happened there. <laughs> um, So we'll get out of here. We did a solid uh, over an hour. That was a long podcast. Um, If anyone listening enjoyed that and thinks me and Colin are assholes, uh, Borky, tell them where they can find your podcast. Uh, at the Borky Show on every platform you can think of, you can find it there. It's just me, and they're they're pretty quick. You know, seventeen twenty minutes a day. Uh, just my general thoughts on uh, the biggest story in the sports world. Mississippi focused, of course, but like tomorrow, uh, I will have a full reaction to uh, Saints Cowboys and then the other preseason games from last night. So quick podcast every day, uh, just me. Uh, so God bless you if you listen to it. Yeah, it's better analysis and fewer immature jokes. So if you're tired of this, go go over there. Um, <laughs> but um, I really appreciate you filling in today, dude. That was fun stuff. Let's uh, what? So we got radio this afternoon, and then I'll kind of be back in the swing of things of fall camp again. This is a very weird time to be like out of the loop. But uh, yeah, I don't know. You got any bachelor party advice? Um, no, not really. I think you're smart enough to to understand and know what to do and what not to do. I'll have to report back. Um, So uh, you can catch us on Sports Talk Mississippi 3 to 6 this afternoon. You can catch us every afternoon. Um, Drive time show in a state that's not big enough for drive time? Um, Yeah, no, sports radio doesn't work here at all. That's why uh, uh, our show has been on the air in a statewide capacity for going on a decade now. So it just doesn't work. Decade long experiment. Um, anyway, for for Michael Borky, I'm Brian Scott Rippey. I appreciate Borky filling in today. He will be probably be back on the show uh, more often coming into football season. We uh, and then we have some other podcast idea in the works, so be on uh, be on the lookout for that. But uh, we appreciate you tuning in. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, please give me a four or five star review. You can call me an asshole. You can call me whatever you want on there. As long as you leave four or five stars. Uh, we uh we should be all square there. So like and subscribe, as those in the industry say. Uh, you got anything else? I'm about to hit the beach, man. No, enjoy yourself. I, I got a review on my pod. I don't say that, but I got a review on mine. It was a four star review that said, "This is basically like listening to the radio show in the afternoon. I don't like it. I'll listen anyway." <laughs> That's okay. I got one last <laughs> night, so my buddies were giving me shit last night. We were sitting out on the porch uh, after we got back from dinner. We were sitting out on the porch, and they're like, "Do people review your podcast?" And I was like. I think so. I think you're allowed to. Has anyone reviewed it? So we decided to look it up. And I, I kid you not, I have a review on my podcast that says it is not the worst thing that I've ever heard. I'll take that. Yeah, exactly. And if you talk about a big W. So like and subscribe, rate it. Um, I'm getting out of here. Have a good one, man. See you, buddy. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.